I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball Welcome to My Dilettante Life, a podcast where I talk to experts about what it really means to be a professional fill-in-the-blank, hosted by me, lifelong dabbler, Hannah Binder. If you could just introduce yourself and kind of give your like elevator pitch version of who you are as an artist. Okay, so I'm Julia Vogel. I was born in Washington, D.C., but I currently live in London, UK, England, and and I've been living here for 12 years. Originally, uh, growing up, I was always interested in art and also politics. And I did a lot of campaign work and political work in college. Uh, And there I started to really realize what talking to people was in terms of it's an exchange of information, but also it's where strangers can tell you the craziest things. And that coinciding with me working in a private gallery and hating how elitist it was, kind of came together to be my mission when I started grad school of making public art, where effectively we put the public back into public art. So the work I make today, I call myself a social sculptor and that term references Joseph Boys, who um, was an artist from mid 20th century. Um, and it's much more uh, relational aesthetics, which is another art term to kind of go into making work with people about place and about experience and environment. And the way I interpret it is more literally of creating social experiences with people um, and having them share information about themselves to literally make sculpture. So I've done that in many different ways and I'm constantly unpacking how I can do that in other ways. But at the end of the day, it's about people and making spaces uh, reflect them. Very, very cool. Um, so you you told me a little bit about, you know, how you got into the field after sort of um, some of your experiences in college and immediately after. Did you have an idea when you were a kid that this is something that you wanted to do or did it really not come until you were a little bit older? I think when I was a kid, I would always draw and I I, I loved that art was a place where there was no right or wrong answer and like, yeah, you could get better at it, but you could also just do it. And there was no pressure that you had to like get better at it. Like playing piano, I constantly had to get better at that. You know, it was like so much pressure or like math, you had to like get a grade. And like here I could go to class and you'd say draw a shoe and you would draw the shoe and you could do it however you wanted. And you could use all the materials or none of them and you could make a mess and it was all okay. And that felt really liberating to me. And I think it just kind of became a safe space for me uh, that I had to have it. And when I was a senior in high school, I kind of did it more intensely. And my art teacher at the time was like, you should go to art school. And I was like, I had no confidence that that's something I could really do professionally. And so I went to a liberal arts degree at Oberlin. And there 
I was like, okay, well, obviously I'm going to take an art class every semester. Like that's going to help me deal with all the other work I'm going to do. And then it became apparent that I actually just wanted to take all the classes in the art department because (laughs) you know, why not? Like, why was I, why was I kidding myself that I was going to take this like comparative religion class when really I just wanted to do a screen printing class. Like that was just a no brainer for me. Um, But again, it felt more like indulgence than like a career path. And it wasn't until I did a semester abroad in Italy where um, I was around a lot of students who were in art school who were just not very bright. Um, They were extremely talented. They could draw exactly what they saw in front of me, but they had no unique ideas themselves. They were very much, and that's an unfair statement to make as as a bold statement, but I just felt like a lot of them were there who were technically proficient, but didn't have anything to say with that technical skill set. And I got really encouraged by a few people who I met there and also by my teachers that like, and also just being in Florence for six months where the big ideas are what really shaped that whole city, you know, and that, yeah, you can learn technical skills at any point in your life, but if you don't have the imagination to say something with those ideas, then you can't really be an artist. And if you can, maybe you can. So I think I came back with this inspiration of maybe I could do this, you know? And I kind of went back to college for the last two years, just really head down, like I need to make this work. I need to make the biggest statements I can make because I'm kind of safe here. Like it doesn't matter if I succeed or not. And I ended my college degree with making a piece that took over an entire building of the library. And it was made out of 40 pieces of Perspex uh, with stained glass spray paint. And I replaced, I put them in the windows of the library and at night they glowed. So it was like a reverse stained glass because you would see it from outdoors instead of indoors. And at the time I was like, this is the biggest piece I'll ever make in my life. You know, good job, Julia. Now you can get on with the real world. And um, I moved to New York and applied to every single job I could to try and work in public art as an administrator being like, I need to learn how to do this. And I was very lucky to get a job working for um, this small government organization called Public Art for Public Schools that works with the Department of Cultural Affairs and um, Percent for Art. And basically 50% of Percent for Art projects in New York City um, are schools because Percent for Art is a percent of new developments. Um, Money goes to artworks and 50% of new builds in New York City are schools. So um, we are still catching up with the fact that there are more children than infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But that was the case at least, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, And there I really learned from all these professional artists who I was working with every day, how many different paths there were to be an artist. And I think that really cemented for me that I could do this too, that, you know, uh, and I, I think for me, that was the thing. It was like at 16, I thought I knew what an artist looked like. And by 22, I realized that there was like 60 different versions of what an artist looked like. 
And that was really encouraging to be like, okay, like I don't have to be incredibly good at drawing and really wealthy and, you know, really well connected and an alcoholic to do this. You know what I mean? Like, although they definitely help, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably <laughs> all those things really help. But like, um, I think that was, that was a good, uh, eye-opening experience and I think that to me was then me talking to artists who are like you're 22 if you are 24 like if you want to go do this you should go do it like what what's holding you back if you're not going to do it now when are you going to go do it now you don't have any commitments in a way and so it, it sounded really like it was almost incremental your path toward like seeing yourself as someone who could be an artist and then sort of again taking steps, but not necessarily all at once coming to the realization that you actually can be an artist. Like you didn't leap both feet, you know, into the deep end, just saying at 18, yeah, I have what it takes and I'm going to be an artist. You kind of needed to see that there were um, more paths than you had originally imagined and more possibilities. Is there a person or multiple people who you've really taken as role models um, who either were were or are particularly inspiring or people who you kind of find yourself trying to emulate perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really funny to me. I think what you said was, what you just said was actually really insightful in terms of like, with any career, you always, you don't really know what it is until you kind of see someone doing it. And then even when you see someone doing it, you don't totally know how you would do it. And like some things are really like easy, like to observe like a bartender, you see them doing all the things that they do, but obviously then you try and be a bartender. It's like a lot more multitasking and complicated in the actualness of doing it. And I think there is that shift from being a kid who draws in their attic to then being someone who's dealing with contracts and architect and, you know, managing a studio and, you know, having to buy materials that are in budget and that are safe and, you know, all those, all those calculations. And I think that I was really privileged that I got to see up close all those things. Um, Michelle Cohen was the director of Public Art for Public Schools, and she's now the curator for the Capitol in Washington, DC. And she's my mentor. And um, she really took the time to teach me about public art and also to encourage me and to really um, kind of make me be a better artist who wanted to kind of do the things I wanted to do and not be discouraged that I didn't fit a mold that already existed. And um, I still continually seek her advice when putting together proposals and just talking about life. <laughs> um, and uh, she's incredibly academic. So her references of, of history of public art is incredible. And, and that is inspiring and also just contemporary artists for me to look at. And I think there've been a lot of artists who have modeled different things for me that I've definitely taken from. Um, the biggest thing that I feel like I've learned from a whole set of different artists who I got to work with in New York was um, kindness and generosity. And that 
artists who were able to take time to explain to someone else and to share their process was the type of artist I wanted to be. And that being in a competitive world that art is, understanding that there's room for every type of art and that you don't have to sledgehammer, you know, somebody who's making work similar to you um, in order to be a better artist. So have uh, you found that with this kind of collaborative approach and some of the things you might appreciate about the mentorship you've received, do you find you're kind of playing a similar role for other artists who may be sort of um, up and coming in fields where you're more established or also kind of like peer support? Yeah, actually, it's funny that you put it that way, because I think first, I think right, at any point in your age, we were just talking about getting older, um, you always feel like you're learning and you always still feel like, how could I teach anyone? I still don't know anything. Right. And then you're like, mm, I've been doing this for a bit. I actually, I actually do know how to do some things. Um, so I, uh, I do do some teaching of screen printing now, but in terms of like mentorship and teaching, um, it's, I was asked by the Tate, um, in London to be one of five artists to be mentors for their Tate collective public art project, um, beyond boundaries, which opened in May this year. And that was a cool experience because it was me and four other artists who were more established, basically having like zoom calls with five younger artists who I think were all like under the age of 25, um, saying you have this huge opportunity by Tate, one of the biggest art institutions in the world to make a piece of public art in London, one of the biggest cities in the world. Um, don't mess it up. <laughs> but, <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> like, and here are all the wisdom we can give you to ensure that you do the best possible work you can do. Um, and honestly, like I learned so much from, from everybody in that group, uh, but it was, it was an honor to be asked to, to do that. And that in a way being asked was, was a great compliment to saying, okay, maybe I've been leading by example anyways. And someone thought I would be a good candidate to do that. And I have had people say like, you're a really generous artist, like almost like, are you sure you want to be this generous? <laughs> um, because I think there were lots of people who made time for me and I want to be able to, to make time for people. Having said that, you know, being an artist, you sort of have to, you have to do the hard work yourself. So there's only so much one can give, but um, yeah, I mean, I think if I can be seen as somebody who can give some advice or be of assistance or can help inspire other people to kind of find their voice, then that's, then job done, you know, for <laughs> being a good person in the world. Well, yeah. And, and I feel like not being nearly as well-versed in art as you are, but I definitely have seen, as you said, there's, you know, myriad different ways to be an artist, to bring art to the world. And some of them are like the lone genius working in their garret somewhere. And some of them are like collaborative projects. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the one that comes to mind for me. Since I'm from New Mexico, there's uh, an artist collective that created Meow Wolf. Oh. which is like this, uh, anytime someone tries to explain it, they just kind of are rendered speechless for a moment. But I think the collaborative um, or the collective has like, I don't know, I want to say 40 to 50 people in it. And they create these um, 
experiences that are just really wacky and wonderful. And I love it because, you know, I think at some point they like have a list of names somewhere, but it's not like each um, piece of art is stamped with the name of the person who did it because it really is such a collaborative thing. So I like that that shows kind of the, the width and breadth of, of the variety of things you can do. Yeah. Um, now, so you've been, how long would you say that you've been an artist now professionally? I mean, I would, I would, so my, the big project that I did outside of university was in 2009. So that's what, 11 years, 12 okay. years. So yeah. in your 11 slash 12 years of, um, of experience being a professional artist, plus the years before that kind of getting a peek into the art world, what surprised you about what it means to be an artist? Um, it's a lot of admin. That is like the overarching theme of the interviews that I'm doing. It's like no one thinks about the like filling out expense reports aspect of any job. <laughs> Proposals. I mean, it was really, it was really interesting when I was like 26. I had a friend who was like applying for jobs and she applied to like 17 jobs. And I was like, yeah, but you're applying to 17 jobs. And then you're and she was a social worker. She's like, I was like, then you're gonna get one and you're gonna have it maybe for life. I'm going to be applying for jobs every two weeks to two months to like five years all the time for the rest of my life. Like, why did I choose this? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of admin. It's a lot of proposal writing. It's a lot of uh, fundraising. Um, Is it like advertising yourself or like sometimes um, and maybe think, not advertising, but like marketing, branding type of. Work. Yeah, I mean, I've had like the most frustrating conversations with people who, when I designed my first website, who was like, "Who is this for?" And I was like, "It's for everyone." And they're like, "That's not something that we can really. We we need we need to like narrow the fields, Julia. Like, is this for galleries? Is this for people buying your work? Is this for you know the public just seeing what you do?" And I was like, "Again, it's for everyone." And they're like, "Okay, well, we have to like strategize." So, yeah, I constantly have this this frustration with branding and being pigeonholed and I don't like it and um, as a result I do think I'm a little bit of a bipolar artist because I do make these big bold public art pieces that involve like a thousand people and take over a building and then you know get recycled the next day um, and then I also do these things which you can't see but they're behind me I'm doing all these drawings and prints and they could all be saleable but more I do them for my own sanity and I don't have a gallery representing me, um, but I feel like I have to make all the time. So I think it's hard. I think when you do have a gallery, they do help brand you. I do think now there are a lot more artists who are getting into like Instagram and like, you know, having to represent themselves um, in a way that like galleries used to do that for you. Um, and I find that less enjoyable. Um, and I know some artists who really like it, um, but I've been lucky in that I've been able to make work and make connections and concentrate on my work speaking for itself rather than like me myself speaking for myself. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, that like you are constantly aware that like you are your work and at any point somebody could mention 
and something and your ears pick, you know, whenever somebody tells me they're an engineer, I get really excited. I'm like, oh, you're an engineer. Cause I'm thinking like, I'm doing a project now where it's like an engineer is going to cost me 10 grand. You know, I'm like, if I know an engineer, maybe. <laughs> so <laughs> so like, any future listeners out there who have potential skills that might be useful to yeah. an artist, uh, yeah. Get in touch with Julia Vogel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that didn't really answer your question, but like, yeah, there's a lot of like promotion, but there's also a lot of like networking inter- internally too. Mm-hmm. But I will say like, I like people and I like talking to people, which not all artists do. And that means that I actually have just met a lot of really fascinating people. And sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're not, but they're still make me think and see the world in a different way. And that's also really important. So what would you say are some of the most common or biggest misconceptions that non-professional artists have about what it means to do your job? And like, what do you wish people knew about, about your work professionally? I mean, I think people have this conception that artists like go to a studio and lock themselves away and create works of genius um, all the time. And then somebody random just shows up at their gallery and is like, or studio. And it's like, this is amazing. And we should have a show. It's like, that might've happened for Picasso, but like even Picasso was hanging out at the bar all the time talking about himself, you know, it's like, I think. Again, with the being, you know, drunk, (laughs) probably helping or an alcoholic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you, you have to be open about what you're doing you you can't just pretend like people will know what you're doing and you have to put yourself out there and so much of where I started was that I got frustrated at applying to so many things and no one noticing that I was like right I'm gonna do it myself and I think that is a big thing that people don't realize is that if you want to be an artist like don't wait for someone to put you in a show or give you permission like go do it yourself you know, um, whether it be like in New York, I used to have shows in my apartment. Um, and like my friend here turns her living room into an exhibition space three times a year. And, um, you know, I've applied for grants where in Brooklyn, I got the Brooklyn Arts Council grant when I was like 23. And that was a game changer because it let me make a piece in a park in New York City. And, um, because I did that, then people were like, oh, she can do something. And as soon as someone, it's like that catch 22 of like, people won't give you the gig until you know that you can do the gig. It's like, you have to make the gig happen yourself. Um, do you think and, that like, um, you were talking about people being, some artists being more active on social media. Do you think stuff like Instagram and I don't know, Twitter so much, but Facebook, do you think that's kind of created more of those opportunities for people to, um, to create opportunities for themselves? Definitely. Although I think it is also limited too. So it's like a great way to show people your studio and a great way to say like, look, I'm doing all this stuff. Um, But it can't just exist on Instagram. It has to exist in the world. And um, I think the artists I know who are doing well are not just making stuff on Instagram. They're doing stuff in the world and then putting it on Instagram and saying, you know, And I I did once have a conversation with an artist who had a lot of followers who was like, um, you know, I said to her, I was like, oh my God, you have so many followers. And she's like, yeah, but you're getting paid. 
And so then we, then we had a discussion about like how we could, how we could both like kind of trade the skills. And I realized I was like, I don't think I have what it takes to try and get 10,000 followers. That's just, that's a full-time job that I'm not interested in, but like filling out applications or asking for money to go do projects where I can get paid and pay other artists to work with me. That's something I can spend my time doing. So everybody has different, you know, aspirations and skill sets. But at the end of the day, you have to spend a lot of time promoting your ideas and getting your work out there. And you can't just wait for someone to find you. I think that's the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. I think the difference between being a professional and not, because when you're a professional, you decide to do this all the time. Even if you're working other jobs, you just are constantly making and putting work out there. And it isn't just being made for your sketchbook. It's being made for the world. Well, and that's, so, you know, one question I have, I think for people in sort of the more creative fields, if you will, is um, I think people often have this perception um, that the minute you turn from it being a pursuit you do purely for your own pleasure to something you make a living doing, that it changes the nature of doing that work. So do you, do you find, like, how has your relationship to your art changed because of it now being your career and not just something that you do out of, like, inner, an inner need to express yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's, um, I mean, in some ways it's amazing because it's, like, I'm being paid to do what I love. And on the other hand, it's, like, every, every job is work. Like, it wouldn't be called a job if it wasn't work, right? So it's, like, I have clients and, like, I work with them and, they mostly trust my vision, but they also have requirements. And so things have to fit with what they want and it has to fit in their deadline. And sometimes, you know, you have this great idea in your head and they're like, okay, but we want this as a three page PowerPoint presentation. And you're like, this idea, I need to like, you know, sing you a song. I can't put this in a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> um, so, you know, you have to learn to speak their language. And I'd say like, that's one of the hardest things is, is, doing that. And then what does that take away from your pleasure of making work? And I think, you know, I, that's why I sort of describe myself as a bipolar artist because, and again, I'm not referring to the mental health state, which is definitely a big thing in the world, but I, I feel more bifurcated in that I'm making commissions where people are paying me money or I'm raising money or I'm getting grants to do these big kind of community engagement projects. Um, and then from some of the benefit of that is that I also get time in the studio to make these drawings and prints. And those are again, a release. And they do inform what I make in these public art projects. And I do love, you know, the time I spend with the public art projects, but it's a different timeline. And I think at the end of the day, like I have to make, and so I'm gonna find ways to do that. But if I, I think there, you know, I teach screen printing and one of the reasons I do that and I love it is because I can show up and do it and then leave. And I'm not taking that home with me. And I think for a while I was working in art administration and I was like, I can't do, be an art administrator and be an art administrator for my own work. It's like, that's, that's too much. So if I'm going to be an administrator for my own work, I need to find another job that uses a different side of my brain or else I'm just gonna be drained. And I think some artists get into this where they, are kind of doing work that they love doing for somebody else. And then they don't have time or energy to do it for themselves. So I think it's really important to figure out, you know, what can you make money doing that doesn't take away, you know? And I know a lot of amazing artists who are like, 
I'm going to work as a waiter because I just am doing a totally different thing. I don't want to work as a gallerist. I don't want to work, you know, um, as a curator because that will take away from what I need for my work. Well, and it sounds like um, the idea of sort of contrast is really important in order to maybe like cleanse your palate, not... (laughs) I realize that's like yeah, also yeah, yeah. a pun, uh, someone yeah, intended. Great. Um, but yeah, like, so just thinking too about, you're talking about sort of the frantic and maybe somewhat unpredictable nature of seeking out commissions and seeking out support. And um, in contrast to that, if you are working at a, you know, recurring, regularly scheduled, um, predictable job, whether it's, you know, um, waiting tables or teaching a class, like that just gives you the chance to sort of turn off those other parts of your brain and have something that is dependable, that's predictable, that's routine. Um, and that, yeah, hopefully gives those parts of your brain that are heavily engaged in this other area some time to rest, but then also might like energize you by waking up other parts of your brain, let's yeah. say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you have a burning question for a previously interviewed guest? Do you want an update from a particular interview? Submit your question on the podcast website, and it may be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment, where we have a quick check-in or follow-up with someone who appeared earlier on the show. So, um... I know you've talked about um, sort of being surprised at the amount of administration uh, tasks that that it requires. Um, What would you say are like the coolest parts of being an artist, the most tedious? And then is there anything that is like exactly what you thought it would be before when you were a kid dreaming about being an artist? Is there anything that you're like, yes, that is exactly what I pictured this being like? I mean, it's, it's really, there, there's, it's really nice. Nice isn't even the right word. It's very gratifying to come into my studio for a day and just draw all day and get the same joy that I did when I was six and when I was 15 and when I was 25 and know that when I'm like 105, I'm still going to get that. Like maybe I'll be a little arthritic in my hand, but like that there's this continuity of even if I'm starting again, uh, on a blank slate, that there's something in me that gets this great, that has to do this and gets this great joy out of doing it. Like that's, that reminds me I'm doing what I need to be doing. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I feel really great gratification that I still have that. Um, I think a coolness about art is um, that there's still opportunities that you didn't even dream of that can still happen. So like, you know, a few weeks ago, I got an email where someone was like, would you consider being a judge for a um, chainsaw wood carving reality television show? What? <laughs> Please tell me this is airing sometime in the next year so we can all sit so on our pandemic I, I don't know if the it. show's <laughs> even gonna, I don't know if the show's even gonna happen. And I like, 
interviewed and who knows what will ever happen. I mean, they were like, we're looking for people who have no chainsaw experience because apparently all the chainsaw wood carvers in the world with whom I don't know how many there are, are all want to be contestants and don't want to be judges. Um, but it's like, I could have never predicted that. And like being an artist means you can do crazy shit like that. Or I hope that they have a great though, uh, like accidental death and dismemberment policy on hand <laughs> because that is right for accidents. <laughs> I know. And I also just kept thinking like, that's going to be a really loud TV show, <laughs> just, you know, um, but that's awesome. Yeah. It's such a, like yeah. a different, um, yeah. You, like you said, you've never engaged in that medium as an artist. So yeah. Who would even, yeah. Know? So it's like the idea, the possibilities are cool. Like in the art world, that there's no limit that like I could be doing that or I could be designing, you know, I'm designing a public engagement piece for people who are being scanned in a hospital. Uh, waiting room and you know it's maybe not as sexy sounding because I'm waiting for infection control to make sure all my materials are okay but it's like awesome that you know again as a child I would have never imagined that I'd be making pieces for like a hospital so I think the diversity of opportunity is what's really cool about this field is that I'm not saying like I'm only going to make paintings that are going to be in people's houses it's like there's so many different ways that this weird skill set I now have can unfold. Well, and especially um, in the realm of public art, I would imagine just you get a level of engagement with a broader audience that, um, and probably that has like fewer barriers. Like people aren't seeing your pieces in like on the walls of fancy museums where everyone has to be quiet and stay a certain distance away. Like you can probably play with a lot of those normal boundaries kind of a lot more loosely. Um, yeah. And that sounds awesome. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very cool. So yeah, is there anything that um, you experience now that you're like, yep, this is exactly what I was expecting. Like, you know, the, if someone has sort of the stereotypical idea of what it means to live an artist's life, there are certain things where you're like, yes, this is, this is true. A hundred percent. That's a good question. Not really. I mean, it's, um, I think I, I think there's part of me that always thought that being an artist would be easier. <laughs> like I knew, like everyone's like, oh, it's so hard. You're going to be a starving artist. And it's like, you know, you're only a starving artist if you don't go to the supermarket. Like, um, y- you, you have to prioritize how to stay alive and also do what you love. And And that's just time management and getting older. And I think as a child, you sort of feel like you you don't think about those aspects that like you're still a person who has to exist in the world and take care of yourself and like vacuum and cook and, you know, um, pay taxes and things like that. Um, And that's just like life. And that does eat into the time that you want to be in the studio making. Like, that's just the reality of it. And I think maybe as a kid, you glorify that like, oh, if you're a really successful artist, you don't have to do any of those things. And it's like- You live on paint fumes. They're so nourishing. (laughs) Um, So I think it's just more the perception that you have about something when you're younger is really doesn't take into consideration, like just being a person in the world, which can sometimes be boring. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes that's really nice. (laughs) It's like, you know, you can turn your intellectual crazy brain who's like, can't find a way to finish that painting, you know, off and just make 
dinner no yeah I bake a lot um as a like way to just sometimes get out of my own head you know yeah as as we millennials have coined it um sometimes you just have to adult yes exactly yeah exactly (laughs) um now do you see like and maybe this can come from your own experience of sort of prior to art being a career versus now. Um, what would you say are the differences between pursuing art as a hobby, so just something you do purely for pleasure versus something you do as a, as a career or a job? It's really funny. Um, I was somewhere a few years ago, I think just at someone's birthday party and they were like, what are your hobbies? And I just really had like a little bit of a meltdown because I was like, I don't have any hobbies. Like my, my hobby is my life, like, you know? Um, and I think there's something associated with a hobby that you can turn on and off it that, you know, um, it's a nice thing to do. Although there are some people who are super competitive about their hobbies. So, you know, they can, um, you know, uh, they want to race because they're a runner and they need to like get faster times or people who are in singing choirs who suddenly are like having competitions. Um, I think there becomes a difference when you suddenly are planning your whole life around your hobby as opposed to your hobby fitting, slotting into a three to 4 PM on a Saturday, you know, between all the other things you do in your life. Um, And I think there is this, you know, when I was younger, somebody said, oh, are, you're just a Sunday painter, which meant that like, you only make time, you know, I was working nine to five in New York. Like I only had time to do art. Yeah. On a Sunday. Right. Um, and there was this kind of negative attitude of like, you're not giving it enough time. And so then I got a studio and I was going after work, you know, from like six to 10 PM, three days a week. And it's true that like, as soon as you give yourself more time doing something, and I used to say like, you have three bad days in the studio before you have a productive day, you know, but you won't have that productive day unless you give yourself time to kind of fail and make mistakes and just lean into that. And I think someone said you master something when you've done 10,000 hours of doing something. And I think that's probably true that like the major difference between a hobby and a like life pursuit is just time and how much time you want to give it. And sometimes, you know, like you want to knit for an hour and that's it, you know? And then there are people who are like, stop everything. I just want to be knitting all the time. Well, okay, like that's cool. Um, I think the other thing I would say is what do you want to say with that? You know, it's one thing to do it for yourself and it's another thing to kind of, to do it because you feel like you, you feel like that is a contribution that you feel like needs to be heard or needs to be recognized and, um, or can then inspire and that other can impact other people. And I think for me, when I was like, if I'm going to get into this, I wanted to do something that would then have impact. And you can't just do that. You can't just make impact from like two to 5 PM on a Sunday. Like once a week it it just it doesn't happen in anything you you have to um work at it that's really interesting to think about yeah sort of like um an inward focus versus an outward focus um and sort of where not to say that it's like completely binary like it's either one or the other 100% because i'm sure as you've talked about you get 
some internal reward from the work that you do. Um, and yeah, if someone like volunteers for a few hours each week, then that's going to have an impact on people beyond themselves, but maybe like the main focus and the main enjoyment or reward is internal for hobbies or that which we spend less time on and more externally focused that for really things that are careers or, or um, yeah, you're devoting more time and energy to it. Interesting. Thanks. I really like that uh, that way of drawing a distinction because it's not something I've I've heard before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's still hard. People are like, "What are your hobbies?" And I'm I still have trouble answering that question. I was like, "Do you want to know how I spend my time?" Like, just, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, knitting. If you haven't, if that's not like a chosen medium that you use, you know, it seems to be. Uh, oh my gosh! When somebody, I mean. <laughs> Like basically I did this project once for this corporation that was a fashion forecasting company. And anyways, I used, I ordered like meters and meters and meters, like close to maybe 1800 meters of shoelace and got all of these people to chart themselves on line, plot themselves as a line graph about future things that would happen for them using the shoelace. And we made it kind of like this woven like graph. And I had them predict like the likelihood of them, you know, going to the movies tomorrow to only buying online by 2030 to being knighted by the King to dying and being in love. Um, and, and anyways, somebody saw this piece and was like, oh, you should come run a workshop in our library um, about knitting with the knitting group. And so then I was like, and they were like, and we can pay you and it'll be great. And at the time I was like, just saying yes to anything because I didn't have to apply for it. Somebody was already giving me a job. Great. And then my, I turned to my friend who's very good at knitting. And I was like, I don't know anything about knitting. Like, what am I supposed to do? And so she like was roughly the night before trying to teach me how to knit. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go in and I'm just going to ask them like, why do they knit? What did they love about knitting? And, and have them teach me, like, this is clearly, I'm not being hired because I'm an expert knitter. I'm being hired because like, I, I like bringing people together. So anyways, I met this man who like within the first 10 minutes taught me how to finger knit. And I was like, this is amazing. Okay. So then that set me on like maybe an eight month obsession with finger knitting of which I then made like a huge quilt uh, that I still have. Um, but we, but we use this to get the group to all make bunting and created like a little, we brought sofas out onto the quad and then we got people from the community to come and learn how to finger knit. <clears throat> and then we took their sections and we put them all together and we made a quilt for the library window that was made up of everybody's, you know, whatever, 10 centimeters of finger knitting. Um, and the whole point was to, just to show like anybody can knit. It doesn't, you don't have to be 85 and a grandmother, you know, mm -hmm. and that was really cool to just say like, so I, you know, even if I get into knitting, I'm going to be obsessed. I was just, just, just going to say, you're not very, um, you're not very good at just letting things remain like a side hobby. Maybe the baking is maybe we can, maybe the baking, the, the baking, baking is a good one. Yeah. The baking is a good one. <laughs> yeah. Good. So <laughs> Would you say that now you see yourself as an expert? And if so, like, were there particular experiences or people that that sort of cemented 
in yourself the notion of you being an expert? Um, I mean, it's been really interesting. I learned to screen print when I was 20 at university. And I think I technically was okay. I would print posters for other people, but it was so hard for me to design a good print. And I just, I felt like, just like I didn't get it. And I kept looking at people and they do it so easily. And I was really stressed about it. And I think it was like seven or 10 years later that something clicked and I suddenly started seeing printing in this whole new way and I could do it. And a few years ago, I'm a member of a screen printing studio here. Um, the, the kind of person leading this, the studio was like, our teacher is leaving. Do you want to teach the class? I think you'd be a good person. And immediately I was like, why? Like, I'm such, you know, I don't make editions of prints. I'm not a graphic designer. Like, why would you ask me? And she's like, but you've tried everything. Like, you are not afraid to print on whatever material, whatever size, whatever image. Like, you've tried it all. If anybody has the confidence to teach somebody to, like, try something, it's you. And I think that's what makes a good teacher. And I was like, okay, cool. So I've now been teaching this class for two years. And it's really great to feel like I know how to really do something like technical, but not only that, I know how to explain it to all these different brains who come into my class with really different backgrounds and say like, I sort of know where you're coming from because I was that person lost in the dark for so long and not understanding how to do this. Um, and I feel like that has made me feel like I'm much more of an expert because I can break down the process of something and even if I don't totally know what's going to happen, I have the confidence that it will be okay. And I think, I think that a little bit about public art projects now too. There's anything that can always go wrong, and I'm still surprised. And but at least now, it doesn't take me as long to piece together all the important things that you have to think about when designing something. And it's because I have experience, and I have experience in a lot of different ways in a lot of different pro like processes um so it was interesting I got I did a TEDx a few years ago and at the time that I did it um I was like you basically are asked like what's what's your expertise like what can you offer to the world that nobody else could offer and I was thinking like nothing like what do I know and then my brother was like well Think about like what motivates you to make the work that you make and like just see this as a way of explaining what you do. Don't think of yourself as an expert. Just try and explain exactly what you do. And that process really helps me um, solidify this core value of community and making work that creates pride and not knowing all the answers, but again, having experience having tried to tackle this challenge over and over and over again and feeling like there's still so much more to learn. And it's been great because like people can now see that 10 minute clip and get a really good sense of all the different types of things I do. And I can kind of stand behind that and say like, yeah, that's, yeah, I know how to do that. <laughs> and um, that's, that was kind of a moment for me to be like, okay, I'm maybe not so new at this. Mm -hmm. Well, Even and if sometimes, I'm still learning. 
sometimes I definitely feel like we have, it kind of takes a forcing event like that for us to um, put into like concrete terms, our own ideas of ourselves and our own narrative. And then we can build on that and that can definitely change over the course of a career. But at least that, like you said, like now you literally have a video that you can go back and listen to yourself expressing how you perceive your own identity as an artist. So I'm sure that was just really helpful to kind of, yeah, be like forced to put it into words. Um, so I wanted to ask, what would you say either to like your childhood self or what advice would you have or insight might you have for someone who is looking to go into the field of art as a career? Um, I mean, I'd say <laughs> when, when I was like, like Roberta Smith came to Oberlin and I asked her that and it was like 19, I was like, what would you say to a young artist and uh, who wants to be a professional artist? And she, she said, don't do it. And um, I remember being super offended. <laughs> it's just like, that's not helpful at all. Um, but then she went on to say that like, it's too hard of a field to do unless you have to do it. And I think that's really true. Like you have to be very self-determined. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have a routine in my life. I'm trying desperately to have one, but, and there are artists who do have much more structure and routine, but like, you have to be ready for things to shift and change. And um, like you create your own structure of the day all the time, if you wanna make work. Um, and you kind of have to make those own opportunities for yourself. And I think to have confidence that just because no one else is doing it the way you're doing it doesn't mean it's wrong. I think that's something I really, I think my teachers kind of were telling me and I wasn't listening because I, I sort of had this idea that being an artist had to be a certain way, that you had to go to art school and that you had to be really technically proficient and you had to have like crazy ideas. And I think that you just have to feel like you can work at something and that it's truly your idea and that you're interested enough in it to make it like a hundred different times badly before you make it well. And give yourself the patience and tolerance to, to do that, to like, to be okay to make mistakes. And uh, so that's like a lot of advice. So I guess, I guess like the, the big ones are like, you have to wanna do it. You have to be very motivated, make your own opportunities, follow your own voice and be okay with failing most of the time because you will learn so much more by doing that. Um, my great aunt was a world famous harpsichord player, um, Susanna Rajiskova. And she's, you know, talk about role models. Like she is an incredible role model for me. She survived the Holocaust. She survived communist Czech Republic. Um, and she was celebrated all over the world. First woman or first person to ever record all of Bach's works for harpsichord, you know, and she was a woman and she was Jewish and she was a non-communist member. And she like smoked till her dying day, like 10 packs a day. Um, anyways, but she once told me, I think there was a year where I kept coming second, I was shortlisted for all these awards and I wasn't winning and I wasn't, you know, getting to do the project. And she said, Julia, it's good that you're not number one, because if you were number one, the first time you would do it. And then you'd never feel like the fight to keep doing it again. You just feel entitled that you, you should get it. 
And uh, this way, you now know how much work it takes that when you get it, you're going to run with it. And, you know, I think that that's true. That I think it's good to, to fail because then you want it more. So then I feel a little bit silly asking my next question because you've just, you know, like really gotten to the meat of like, you have to want it and like need to do art in order to really have the motivation necessary. But if you weren't an artist, what would you be doing instead? If you can imagine that. Well, it's funny because I've been asked that before. And when I was younger, I used to be like, if the craziest thing you want to do is already so hard and you're doing it, why would you have a backup plan, right? Like, right, that's what I was like, whatever. like, should I but even ask you know this what? question? I, but it's not because I actually think that being an artist can open other doors. And there's some doors that are very closed to me that I would like to be open. So one of them is to get like, a, to have a fashion line. Um, and I've been trying desperately to try and incorporate my work into jumpers and scarves and all sorts of things and not really going anywhere because I kind of need a brand behind me to do it. So going back to our earlier call out of anyone out there who may have skills that could be of use to Julia Vogel, um, I at one point in the future will have an episode on fashion. Um, but if anyone listening has any, you know, services they could offer work in partnership with Julia, this would be a great connection to make. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Collaborations. Welcome. Uh Um, and the other thing that I always wanted to do was work in radio Mm -hmm. and actually, um, at the middle sort of February of this year, so halfway through the pandemic, um, I was put in touch with a few other Jewish artists, um, through this group called Asylum Arts. And we were sort of like a self-help group of just like, oh, you're an artist on the other side of the world and you're struggling too. Let's talk about that. Um, and it's great. I've become really good friends with these women. We've never all met in person together, which is crazy. We meet every two weeks and talk about everything from identity to projects we're working on. Um, and one of the women in the group had a theater background and we were talking about how it's so frustrating that everything had to become digital. Everything had to become a digital artwork or a, um, you know, had to change its form somehow. And we are like, wouldn't it be great to make a work that could exist as it was intended now and be accessible to everyone? And I was like, well, you know, I'm listening to a lot of amazing radio plays here in the UK on BBC. Like we should, you know, and I love podcasts, like maybe we can turn a story or an investigation of interviewing a lot of people because both of us like community and I like talking to people and kind of integrate that into somehow an audio artwork. So we were, we were exploring this. She's really interested in like unpacking myths and she's done a lot with like Greek myths. And we said, well, okay, we're in this Jewish group. Maybe we could do something with a Jewish story. So dun, 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 drum roll. Um, but we have just completed our first draft. It's not finished yet of our, uh, piece called the Eve and Adam project. Ooh, I like and, that title. Yeah. And it's a retelling of the biblical story from the perspective of Eve and Adam as Gen Z um, living today in the world. And also they go to therapy years later. And also we got 25 experts and non-experts, people from all over the world, different perspectives. Um, to kind of be our Greek chorus telling the story and impact 
on the world today throughout the whole thing. So yeah, I think if I could do anything else, it would be to lean into more of this kind of radio format and not necessarily hosting a podcast, but definitely like bringing, bringing stories to life in this, in this medium. Cause I think it's kind of sound as a magical space. Definitely. So I'm picturing, you know, I could be sitting at home wearing one of your pieces of art um, and having experienced one of your public works um, in, you know, a physical space, but also getting the sort of full surround, the surrounding experience um, with some radio content that we will definitely link to when it is uh, up and ready for listening. Yeah. Awesome. So um, my last question for you then is just, is there anything that you would like to be asked um, about your experience as a professional artist? Is there something you you want me to ask? Is there something you would like to talk about to the audience? Mm, That's a good question. I mean, I get, I, I think, this is a taboo subject in a lot of ways, which is like money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, somebody once asked me like, do you, um, you know, are, are you, is, is being an artist financially uh, viable? And, um, and I just thought that was such an insensitive question because I was like, I don't ask you, you know, you're an investment banker. I don't ask you if that's soulfully fulfilling, you know? So, um, feel like that was kind of taboo but I do think in terms of transparency and like encouraging other people about this field like that is a big issue that maybe not enough people talk about and um my friend and fellow artist Kelly Lloyd is doing a huge sound project in interviewing I think she's now interviewed 80 artists all over the world about their relationship to their livelihood and the professional worlds in the arts and that impact and I just wanted to kind of say like I think the arts, when you are doing something independent, you take a huge risk financially. And that isn't always seen as the most accessible thing um, to do. And definitely I felt very privileged to have support for not only like, you know, my education, but also to have parents who, who believe in what I do and don't think I'm crazy and I think it's really hard for people who want to do the arts and people who love them don't get it and don't give them any emotional support, let alone help them financially. Um, So I guess I just kind of wanted to bring it up because I think it can always be that thing where it's like, oh, it's all well and good for her to say that. Um, But yeah, like half the battle of being an artist is that you are undervalued all the time and you will never get paid for the time that you put in to something. <laughs> Somebody was like, how many hours did you spend on that? And I was like, um, do you want to count the time, the, the minutes in the shower, the bus rides, the 10, you know, like you will never be able to afford if I put an hourly wage on a piece of work, what, what it costs. Um, but that's not why you do it. Right. Um, but no, I think that yeah. is important to talk about. Like, I mean, like you said, it's not necessarily vital that you have, independent wealth or connections, but at some point I would assume you do need to have the flexibility 
whether it's like lack of commitment um, to supporting other people or just yeah, like the financial stability to at least have those hours that you were talking about to start building toward the 10,000 hours. Um, if you have all these ideas in your head, but you literally can't financially afford to spend the time doing that, then they're going to unfortunately stay in your head. Um, so I think it's great that you are transparent about it. I know it's, yeah, I'm sure it's not necessarily like a comfortable thing to talk about, especially because there is such a um, stigmatizing stereotype of like the starving artist or like the trust fund artist and all of that, that kind of um, belittles, I think, the hard work that you put in. But then it's also equally important to acknowledge um, that there are many people out there who don't even have sort of the minimum um, privileges or abilities granted to them to, to go into this field, even if they want to. Yeah. And I think that like, it's a huge vulnerable place to put yourself into pursuing a career that isn't necessarily going to be financially give you the retention that you want. Having said that, like the arts do bring in a huge amount of money to the economy. And um, there's huge amounts of jobs in the fields as varied that you couldn't even imagine, you know, even in theater, like the amount of technicians that are required or set design or costume or, um, and as I've just, you know, mentioned like anything from doing like hospital design to like fabric design on public transport to, um, you know, being a chainsaw wood carver, like there is a, a huge depth of roles and professional links to pursuing the arts. And the other thing I would say about anybody who's studying the arts or thinking about studying the arts is like, it's a skill set that will help you with any other job. That like, if you're going to take an art class, it's just gonna help you see things in a different way. And even if you're a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, um, a, an accountant or even a barista, you know, seeing the world in a different way, I think is important. Um, to kind of get um, new perspective and understand other people and maybe what, you know, other things you're dealing with. So I think it's, it's life, it's a life gift um, to spend some time doing arts, even if you don't think it's your thing. And if you do think it's your thing, I think there are lots of ways to make that pay off in different ways too. When I grow up, I want to be a rock star. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke, with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests, and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!